Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. But if you would, open with me uh, the Word of God this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. But also, we'd just like to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to get you a Bible. So please, if you don't have one, see me after the service and I can get you a Bible. Do you ever get discouraged watching the news today? (laughs) It seems like 95%, and maybe I'm lowballing, what's on the news today is discouraging. You turn on the news and what do we hear? We hear talks about COVID and talks of inflation rising, the rising foods and gas prices. They don't talk about this, but we see it, the extreme dysfunction in Washington, D.C. amongst our leaders. Um, You hear about the fact that we potentially could be on the brink of war. It's all discouraging news that we hear today when we turn on the television when we get online and look at the news outlets? What about in your own personal life? Do you ever find yourself in seasons where it seems like everything is just going wrong? Maybe not, maybe not even that everything's going wrong in your life, but maybe you're in a season where there's not even really much to be excited about. The news that you hear is not good news. So I wonder this morning, Is there anybody in God's house that needs some good news? I know I need some good news this morning, especially with the morning that I'm having, obviously. (laughs) But this morning, I want to bring to you a word from arguably one of the greatest books in all of Scripture and in one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. So if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 8. And this morning, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, We are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we are overwhelmingly, we will overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. This morning in the time that we have remaining, I'd like for us to consider two critically important truths from the scripture. These two truths, I believe, are good news for us today. First, God is for us. God is for us. And secondly, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. First, God is for us. Again, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, let's take this verse apart for a moment. First, what then shall we say to these things? We have to ask the question, well, what are these things that he's referring to? He's referring to what has come before these verses. So what are some of the things that we find in Romans chapter 8? Well, he tells us in verse 1, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He also tells us that for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. We also find in Romans chapter 8 that now, because of what Jesus has done, we are no longer under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He also tells us that now, because of Jesus and what Jesus has done, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we are now both heirs and co-heirs with Christ. He also tells us in verse 28 that now... He, God will cause all things to work together to, for good to those who are called according to his purpose. We also read how those whom he has called, he, 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 first for, he foreknew them, he predestined them, he called them, conforming them to the image of his son, that we have been justified and glorified. These are the these things that Paul is talking about here. So what do we say to these things? What do you say to the fact that you do not no longer have to be condemned because of your sin if you are in Christ Jesus? What do you say to these things that God foreknew you and he predestined you, he's justified you and glorified you? Simply, we say amen. And what does amen mean? Amen, amen means, and let it be so, Lord. We say praise God to these things. We say thank you, Lord, to these things. He says, then goes on, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, if, if you're not careful, you can, you can read that if God is for us to sound like maybe Paul's questioning if God is for us, but he's not. There is an assurity that Paul gives here. Another way of translating it could be since it is so. So since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, who is the us? It's found in 28 through 30. It's those who love God, those who've been called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is obvious. No one. If God is for us, then there is no one that can be against us. But you have to understand, God is for us, those who are found in Christ Jesus, in a way that he is not necessarily for the rest of the world. John three sixteen, a verse we all 
probably know or at least familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. You see, God loves the world, and he demonstrated his love for the world, and that he sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, right? This is the message of the gospel. This is a message that God intended for the whole world, that if you would merely believe, that if you would merely trust, place your faith in Jesus Christ, you could have eternal life. But his love for the elect, as we are called, or the chosen, is different. And that God foreknew us, he did predestine us, he called us, as the word says, justified and glorified us. So God does relate to his people differently than he does to the rest of the world, but God does love all of us. Again, we don't have time in this sermon to go into exactly what those words such as foreknown, predestined mean, but for another time maybe. So if you're here today, if you're watching online or listening over the radio and you've trusted Christ as your savior, you've trusted him as your Lord, I want you to know today, I want you to hear this good news that God is for you. The all-powerful creator of the universe is for you. I want you to take a moment and to really consider that and what that means, that God is for you. I believe this is something that believers need to remind themselves of every day because it's very easy in the midst of a world where we're being bombarded with discouraging messages. We have to remind ourselves that God is for us. And again, if he is for us, then no one can stand against us. Now, this is not to say that there are not forces in our lives that are coming against us because there are. Let me share with you at least three forces in this world that come against us. First, the world. The world is against those who are for Christ. And why? Because Christianity is offensive to the world. The Bible tells us this, that we would offend those of the world. The Christian faith is opposed to the world in its God-rebelling ways. Jesus himself told us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, the first part of verse 22, that you will be hated by all because of my name. So we should not be surprised when we, are encountered, when we encounter hatred by the world. The flesh is also against us. The flesh contains the seeds of sin. And as long as we live in this world, we will continue to battle the temptations of the flesh, the sins of the flesh. And then the, the last one is an obvious one. Who is it that comes against us? Satan comes against us. Arguably the one who comes hardest against us. And indeed, he is a powerful enemy. The Bible speaks of him as a lion who is seeking to devour us. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 referred to him as the thief who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan comes to us seeking to cause doubt in our hearts and in our minds. He wants us to doubt the fact that God is for us. We see this all the way back at the very beginning. Do you remember in the, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall when he comes to Eve 
He makes her question. He says, has God really said that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You see, he wanted Eve and he wanted Adam to doubt that God was for them. He wanted them to believe that God was holding out on them, holding something back. You know, like Adam and Eve, we too fall into the traps of Satan. And at times we come to believe that God is not for us. But yet his word speaks to the contrary that God is indeed for us. Since God is for us, what does it matter who comes against us? That should be our attitude. Who cares what comes against us because we know that God is for us? This is the confidence that we see in Gideon in the Old Testament, how Gideon could stand with 300 men and defeat an army of 135,000 because God was for him. It's this same confidence that allowed a teenage boy by the name of David to stand against a nine-foot-tall giant. And we see this confidence in the fact that God was for him in 1 Samuel chapter 17, arguably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Listen to the words that David says to Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hands. David had a confidence that God was with him. Even in the face of a nine-foot-tall giant, overwhelming odds stacked against him, David knew that God was with him. And so the word that I want you to hear today, the word that Paul is telling us, is that if God is for us, which we know that he is, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are one of his, then he is with us, then what do we have to fear? And who cares what comes against us? But how, you may say, Pastor, how can I know for certain that God is for me. Well, I'm glad you asked. In verse 32, Paul gives us the answer to how we can know that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Are you tempted to doubt that God is for you? If you are, Paul gives you the answer, how you can know that God is for you. And it's simply this. Look back to what God has already done for you. Look back to what God has already done for you in the past. Specifically, look to the cross. It's in the cross that we see that God is indeed for us. Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, is the greatest gift 
that the Father has given to mankind. And we can know that he is for us and that he will always be for us because he has already given the greatest gift of all his son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. You see, in the cross, God put everything on the line for you and for me. Jesus came to be the ultimate sacrifice. And hear me when I say the cross was God's plan A. It was not an afterthought. Before the fall even occurred, before God even created man, he knew that man would fall. And so he decided in eternity past that the cross would be how he dealt with man's sin, how he would redeem mankind. It says that God did not spare his son, though he could have, he didn't. Throughout the centuries here, theologians and scholars have noticed the strong similarities between this verse and the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. This can be found in Genesis chapter two. Abraham willingly offered up his son, his only, his only true son, the one that he loved as a sacrifice. And just before he brings the knife down into his son, God calls out and his hand is stayed. And in that moment, God tells him, because you did not withhold your son, I know that you love me, I know that you're serving me, and God provides a ram to be the sacrifice. Well, at Calvary, unlike in the Abraham story, God did not withhold the knife, God did not withhold his hand, but he offered his son, who was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Notice it also says, but, but delivered him over for us all. This is also another important point. Man did not take the life of Jesus Christ. God handed him over. It was by the hand of God that Jesus went to the cross for us. Jesus bore the full wrath of God for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. In the, in the old hymn, My Savior's Love, I love the verse that says, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And because of that, we can sing, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is what my Savior's love for me. Also in verse 32, he says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This has been described as Paul arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God has given his very best in Jesus Christ, then why would he withhold anything else from us that we need? You see, when Paul says that he freely gives us all things, in all things, make sure you, you don't think that he's saying that God is going to give you whatever you want. This is not some prosperity gospel here. That's not what he's talking about. He's not promising to give us that big house, that big salary, the fancy car. It's not what he's promising, but he's promising to give us all that we need. 
So do you need strength today to overcome temptation? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Do you need a friend today to walk with you through life's dark places so that you might not fall into despair or into hopelessness? Jesus, from his own words, tells us in John 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have what? Called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. At the end of the great commission, Jesus tells them, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and what? Lo, I am with you always. Do you need direction for how to live a life that is pleasing to God. In Psalm 32, 8, the Bible tells us, I will instruct you and teach you, this is God speaking, in the way which you should go. I will counsel you. Do you need comfort today? The Bible tells us we can turn to the God of all comfort who comforts those who are afflicted. That passage especially means a lot to me, even more so in the last year, as many of you know, I've told the story back in August, I had COVID and I ended up in the hospital with double pneumonia. And I was alone for literally 23 and a half hours a day for a week, alone, 23 and a half hours of my day. And there were a few times during that time where I fell into hopelessness. I fell into and asked God, God, where are you? I'm, I don't sense you, I'm, I'm not feeling that you are with me. And in those moments, God made himself known, whether it be through something from his word or in that moment when I cried out, God sent someone in who was able to speak a word to me to remind me that God was with me and there to comfort me. What about in the dark hour of death? David tells us in Psalm 23, verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. And why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. British pastor and theologian John Stott said this, quote, the cross proves God's generosity. The cross proves God's generosity. It proves the fact, excuse me, it proves the fact that God is indeed with us. Verse 33 of Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. What is this charge? Charge can also be translated accusation. So who is it that would accuse us? Well, there are a few that stand as accusers. Again, once the world. The world is constantly watching Christians, waiting for the moment for us to slip and to make a mistake so that they can point out how maybe our words do not, or our actions do not match up with our words. They wait to call us hypocrites and to point out our shortcomings. Did you know that our very own consciences can accuse us, stand as accusers? How many Christians have become experts in putting on a mask in front of others to make them believe that maybe we are better people than what we are, or godlier you see, but the problem is we know our own thoughts 
We know that we struggle, right? We struggle with lust. We struggle with anger. We struggle with lying, with gossiping, et cetera, et cetera. And yet our conscience will not allow us to escape the facade. And so we accuse ourselves. And again, who is the great accuser? His name means accuser. That is Satan. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 32, the Bible, chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. You see, Satan stands before the Lord and he accuses us. You can almost hear him. Did you see what he did just now? There's no way. That's no way for a Christian to act. His behavior is so ungodly. How can a person do that and still claim to be a Christian? Why would you have regard for him? Or might he say, do you know what she was thinking just now? Her thoughts are unworthy of a Christian. Aren't you ashamed of the way that she acts? How could you accept them as your followers? But yet God's word says God is the one who justifies. See, the image here is one of a courtroom where God sits behind the judgment bench and we stand there as the accused, the defendant, and we have the prosecutor, Satan, accusing us before God. But again, remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? If it is God who justifies, who makes the decision of who is right and who is wrong, who declares the believer righteous, then what does it matter what Satan says against us? What is it that God says? That's all that we should care about. And again, just as a reminder, what is it that God has said about us? Earlier in the chapter, in verse 1, he said, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love how Paul emphasizes the now. There is now, church, no condemnation. In this moment, if you are in Christ, you stand before God as one who is justified, as one who is righteous and who is holy. You are not condemned. And then in verse 40, it says, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. For those who have, who have accepted the call to follow Jesus Christ, you have been declared justified. You have been declared righteous before God. The great Welsh pastor, Mark, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, to justify means more than to pardon. It means more than to forgive. It means that God makes a declaration, a judicial declaration to the effect that he has not only forgiven us, but that he now regards us as ju just as righteous and holy, 
as if we had never sinned at all. God not only imputes my sin to his son, he takes his righteousness and imputes it to me, meaning he assigns it. He takes our unrighteousness, our sin, and he assigned it to Jesus, and he took Jesus' righteousness, and he assigned it to us. For we own no righteousness of our own. Romans 3.10 tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. So once God justifies us, our standing before him can never change. Can never change. Even though we continue to sin and fall into the temptations of sin, it doesn't change how God sees us. He still sees us as righteous. Our salvation is still secure. So what do we care then? Why should we care when Satan accuses us before God? It's simple, we shouldn't. All we should care about is what does God say? God says that we are justified, that we are not guilty. Romans 8, 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. Again, the question here, who is the one who condemns? Very similar to the previous question, but this answer is the same. There is no one who can condemn us. Again, while there are those that do condemn the world, ourselves, Satan, their condemnations mean nothing. The only one who could ever condemn would be Jesus Christ because he is the only one who is perfect and was without sin, but yet he doesn't condemn us. The world condemns us, as I said. We condemn ourselves. Sometimes I think we are the worst at condemning ourselves. How many times out of guilt because of our sin do we cry out to God and we say, God, I'm no longer worthy to serve you. You shouldn't want anything to do with me, God. God, you can't use me. I've done too much bad. There's things that I'm ashamed of, Lord. God, my sin is deplorable. I'm not worthy of you. It's what we say. We condemn ourselves. Again, Satan, we've seen, has stood before the Lord very much like a prosecuting attorney pointing out our flaws, pointing out our mistakes. Do you remember in the story of Job? It says that the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan was with them. And God said, have you noticed my servant Job? And Satan says, well, of course he serves you. Look at all the things that you've done for him. Take those things away and he will curse you. Satan stands before us and he accuses, stands before God and accuses us. But yet, how does God respond to that? God says that we're justified. We've been declared right before him. You remember the story, it was referenced recently, I think, by Pastor Steve, of the woman caught in adultery when she was brought before Jesus after the men, Jesus told the men, ye who are without sin, cast the first stone, and they dropped their stones and dispersed. He came and he said, where are those who condemn you? He said, they're gone, Lord. And what did he say? I do not condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. He, he, he points to the fact that G, it was Jesus who died, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of the Father and who intercedes for us. We can stand justified before God Almighty because Jesus went to the cross, because he died 
for us. Again, arguably one of the greatest hymns of the faith, How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross what my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to what? Take away my sin. Jesus received the full wrath of God so that you, so that I would not have to. He took the wrath of God, the full wrath, so that we would not have to. And in the resurrection, the resurrection was proof that his sacrifice had been accepted by the Father. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 13 and 14 and then 17 says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And this is the key. Listen to what he says. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then listen to this. You are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. But hallelujah, he's not in that grave anymore. He got up and he walked out of that tomb and he is alive today. And where is he? Bible says there in Romans, he's at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? Have you ever wondered that? What is it exactly that Jesus is doing? Well, it tell, Paul tells us there in Romans, it says that he is at the right hand of the Father and that he is interceding on our behalf. The right hand, the place of honor, the place of authority. And he's interceding, or it can also be translated advocating for us. Again, think back to the courtroom God the Father sits as judge. Satan stands as prosecutor. You stand there as defendant. And Jesus Christ is your defense attorney. He is your advocate speaking to the Father on our behalf. He is the one who represents us. And when Satan stands as accuser, as he accuses, I can almost hear it. Can you hear it? Jesus says, Father, I object. I object. That's inadmissible evidence because my death has already paid the price. I've already covered that. That accusation has no ground anymore. This is what Jesus does for us. So first point, God is for us. It's good news. God is for us. And why do we know that? Because of what he's done for us through Christ's death. Second point, God is for us, but also nothing will separate us from the love of God. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? To separate means to take apart or to pull apart, to drive a wedge in between. So, so he's saying to the, to the believer, is there anything that can get in between any of these things? Tribulation, the troubles of life, the pressures, whether it be you lost a job, maybe you, you have a, a, a very difficult past, maybe in childhood you experienced abuse, can, can that keep you from God's love? Maybe you've lost someone very near and dear to you, a loved one. Maybe you're in the middle of fighting a serious illness. Can that keep you from the love of God? Can persecution keep you 
from the love of God? You know, this is something that we don't really understand here in America because persecution in America has been very subtle, though it's starting to become more outright. And I believe personally that we should come to expect in the days ahead to experience outright persecution of our faith. But even if persecution comes, can that keep us from the love of God? What about famine, the lack of food? Nakedness had to do with poverty, so severe that you couldn't even cover yourself with clothing. Peril, which is danger. Danger from the fact of simply being a Christian. Again, we don't really understand this in our country, but there are nations in this world where it is illegal to be a Christian, where your life will be in danger. And then he says the sword, the possibility of being killed for your faith. Again, we don't see it here, but this happens all around the world today. Can that separate us from the love of God? The answer is obvious, it's no. Those things may come, but for the believer, we should never fear these things because they cannot separate us from the love of God. Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to the slaughter. Here, Paul quotes from the book of Psalms, chapter 44, verse 22. Again, he wants to make the point that the people people of God have always faced opposition and will always face opposition in this world. Whoever would tell you that if you come to Jesus, your life will be perfect after that. You will have no problems. It will be smooth sailing. They are lying to you. That is not the case. If anything, your life actually gets more difficult once you come to Jesus. But the good news is is that even though it may get difficult, God, the God of the universe, is with you and will see you through all of those times. Suffering is a part of the Christian life, church. We have to accept it. For too long, the church in America has been too comfortable. We have been too comfortable Suffering is a part of the Christian life. We need to develop a proper theology of suffering and accept the fact that it is going to come. But lest we we think that Paul is sitting in some ivory tower talking about these things, I want you to know that everything he has said here that you will face, he himself faced. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he speaks of the fact that he was imprisoned. He was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst the false brethren. I have been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and in exposure. Paul knew what he was talking about when he said, these are things that you're gonna go through. He experienced them. But in that, he said, even though I've been through all of that, nothing can separate me from the love of God. He goes on to say that in all these things, we, are over, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly means we, have, we are utterly able to defeat. In a sense, it's almost like we are super 
conquerors, the word can mean. If you would, take, take the uh, image of a sports team that goes out and just blows out the opponent. It's not even close. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that for those of us who are in Christ, those of us that have been called, those of us that have been justified, glorified, when we come up against these things, we overwhelmingly can defeat them because of Christ. And then probably the greatest verse as he ends, Romans 8, 38 through 49, for I am convinced. And when he says convinced, he's saying, I am determined. I know this to be true, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What he's saying is that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And I will just say, church, there is no greater word that you can hear than that to know that if you are in Christ Jesus, that there is nothing in this world, no person, no thing that can keep you from the love of God. So as we end our time together, I, want us to, I just wanna take a moment and I wanna speak very directly to you today, to two different groups of people here today. First, if you are here today and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you today to cling to these two words. God is for you. God is for you. And it doesn't matter who comes against you because God is for you and he will strengthen you and know that you can never be separated from the love of God. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what sin you've committed in your past. I don't care what sin you are currently engaged in right now. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Again, hear me, I'm not saying continue in your sin, turn from that, but know that nothing will separate you from the love of God because you, in the eyes of God, are justified. Lastly, if you're here today, if you're watching online, listening over the radio, and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to know today that there is a God in heaven who loves you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. He sent him to die for us all. And I want you to know today that you don't have to keep living in your sin. That if you would just come to, to Jesus, if you would just choose to follow him, you can be forgiven.